Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they perceived that they were naked, and they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of Adonai Elohim moving about in the garden at the breezy time of day. And the man and his wife hid from Adonai Elohim among the trees of the garden. And God called, and Adonai Elohim called out to the Adam and said, Ayeka, literally, where are you? But mostly understood in our tradition as a special form of where are you? That means, where are you existentially? Who are you? Where are you oriented in your life? Do you know where you stand? Do you know before whom you stand? Do you have authenticity? Do you have self-transparency? And Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree that I'd forbidden you to eat from? And Adonai God turned to the serpent and said, because you did this, more cursed shall you be than all cattle. And on your belly shall you crawl, dirt shall you eat the days of your life. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And you strike at their head and they'll strike at your heel. I'm going to look a little differently than sometimes the way we read this contextually. Of course, I pointed out Ayeka already. So something profound, God knows where they are. We all, we all know that. And so where are you? Do you know where you are? Do you know who you are? And the Adam replies, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam doesn't say, I was afraid because I disobeyed. I was afraid because you would be disappointed. I was afraid because I would be punished. He says, I was afraid because I was naked. So it's a pun, a pun on the word for clever, but naked meaning like it could also be, I'm embarrassed because I now possess the trait of cleverness. Here, the bashat is the, the trait of being naked. And I'm interested here to interpret it a little bit differently than we may on our first pass, that the enmity between the serpent and the woman, rather than the enmity between the two of them, obviously, we often attribute it, well, it was the woman who tricked the man into it and that kind of stuff. So she gets the enmity. But I want to think about it differently, especially considering sort of major revelations that were in the news this week. So the first thing I notice is I was afraid because I was naked, not because I was afraid because I disobeyed. If the serpent voice is as many people think, including myself, it is a reference, including, yes, the terms of mythology and serpents, but it's a reference to the inner voice that the human being develops, that our species develops in a way different than the animals. So the serpent voice is the fact that you get to, we get to have a voice in our head. And that voice in our head can be used positively, and it can be used negatively. And it's a voice with all of its advantages of self-consciousness, is prone to a kind of Satan, a Satan voice of what comes with an inner voice, what comes with self-consciousness, is an awareness of what people think about you. And a potential substitution for Ayeka, who are you really? And where are you at in your life? The way the voices of what other people think about you crawl into that, invade it, conquer it, subdue it. And where does that leave you emotionally, mentally, psychologically? Interestingly, if that's the case, then God says, what will happen now is this inner voice, which can certainly be used for good cleverness, can be used for all of the purposes the covenant gives us. 
the use of understanding the past, projecting it into the future, imagining roads never traveled before, living in time, all the things that consciousness and evolution bring with it, but also bring with it the possibility that that inner voice is your Satan, is your accusation voice, the voice that makes you feel terrible about yourself, the voice that tries to fool you into thinking that what you are is most well-defined by what others think of you and the concern for that. And here that it is particularly that 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 voice inside of us, it bites at our heels. We try to hit it in the head and we have this ongoing relationship that we'll never get rid of. We blow the shofar in Rosh Hashanah to silence that voice. We read the Hashki Venu at night to tell it to protect us from that voice. But that voice will always be with us. And the question is, to what extent can we silence it and minimize it or replace it with a different a different quality of that inner voice? And of course, in this particular other note I wanted, I said earlier, it particularly affects the woman more than it seems to affect the man, or at least we're given a clue to follow that direction. You probably saw, as I did, that the Wall Street Journal published, and many have written about it, the fact that someone leaked research from Facebook, particularly about Instagram. And it was not at all surprising research. I, I, that I don't like the idea. It's a revelation. Um, People at universities all over this country, all over the world have been studying the effects of social media, particularly on children and particularly on on women and young women who are especially affected. And we've known for years, among others, the McLean uh, McLean Hospital, which is the basically the research arm of Harvard uh, in psychology. It's also where my brother Barack has his lab, as well as numerous other departments in the country that have studied it. So the revelations are not really new. They're just the fact that Facebook knew about this in their understanding of whether they were going to open up and start, which they were, a kid's version of Instagram, which is now being postponed. But what the revelations made clear is young people in particular, but frankly, all of us, that when we put ourselves out there in public, what people think about us is magnified. That Satan voice is magnified, I don't even know what, you know, a Google fold. I mean, it's magnified exponentially is is an understatement. So what would have been one day that Nadav shows up for the middle school dance, thought he maybe shouldn't have gone anyway because he doesn't have enough friends who's going to stand with them and no one's going to dance with him. He can't dance anyway. So maybe I just stand in the corner with a friend or a nice teacher who'll talk to me and it's okay. It could have gone better, but it wasn't a bad night becomes that if you put out there on social media, on Instagram, that you're going to be dancing or you're something about you and your friends, or this is a picture of what I did on my vacation, or this is a picture of my cat. And suddenly you have the whole world of your social group of the school, and possibly also depending on where you post it, literally the whole world. And no one likes it. And no one responds to it. It's like Nadav is completely invisible. But then I'll pick on Meg since she's her first day on the job, but Meg posts a picture of her cat or she posts a TikTok dance of her doing a little dance to the class song and suddenly heart and like and thumbs up. And mine is right before Meg's and it's completely ignored. So I'm on pretty much no social media except for two and it affects me. I'm only on one little fan group for my favorite sports team. And there are probably only about 100 or 200 people on this fan group. And whenever I post a comment about our team, 
I think they're pretty clever. I think they're pretty smart. Sometimes there's even a joke to it. No one ever responds, ever. And yet when anyone else posts, someone always responds, great point, terrible point. You always say things like that. It's like, I'm not part of the group. And for all of my self-awareness and self-confidence, I don't understand why everyone ignores me. I think it may have to do with the fact that my, my, my username is the rabbi, and I think that might be intimidating to people, but I've decided to end my account. And that's like my last little vestige of social media. I do publish podcasts, and I wonder why I have 100 followers and why other people have 1,000 followers or 10,000 followers. I don't publicize myself. I don't try to market myself. I don't know why like we have a thousand views for Yom Kippur and right on my YouTube because it populates it for me. I don't choose it. They know I'm subscribed to Beth Israel. So is there a thousand views for Yom Kippur? But these three synagogues have 15,000 views. And so I can't help that once uh, I rewatch Yom Kippur for the third time, it goes into another synagogue. And I sit there and I'm like, that gets 15,000 views? I couldn't stand that service. I can't stand what the rabbi said. I couldn't stand the, you know, the preening of the performers. 15,000 views. My kids always say to me, dad, it's okay. A thousand's really, really, really good. We're really impressed. They're, they're, they're my, my rooting squad. What is it like to be a 13 year old young woman, a girl, and put out your one idea for like the class project, share a story, share a picture of yourself, what you're going to wear, a picture of your cat, anything and have no one respond to it, and have everyone respond to something else, or worse, what do you see that does have hundreds of thousands of followers, sometimes millions? Since I read stories about this over the last couple of months, I know that my phone knows I'm interested in stories about that, and it keeps showing me YouTubers in particular, they're called influencers, who are dying by suicide. And they're in their 20s, and they're in their 30s, and they're in their 40s. And I didn't know people could have 900,000 followers because they put on makeup or they put on certain things. And they write in their suicide notes and in their final messages. They often have families and they tell their families. Every day I had to get up and think of what is going to get me liked today or else I just don't feel validated. I don't feel real. I have to maintain them. If I say the wrong thing and I lose 100,000 in one day, what does that say about me and whether I'm valid? And their persona is not like their real life. The persona is often extremely positive and happy. And it's like, I'm going to confess to you my deep, dark secret that I suffer from mental anxiety. But let me tell you the life hack that just solved it for me with my new selfie and my beautiful uh, makeup. People on Instagram use filters to make their bodies look different and conform to a certain image. So in the research out of, for example, McLean Hospital uh, in, in outside of Boston, it says that social media has a reinforcing nature. Using it activates the brain's reward center by releasing dopamine. It's a feel-good chemical linked to, you know, it's pleasurable activities, such as sex, food, and social interaction. And the platforms are designed to be addictive and are associated with anxiety, depression, and even physical ailments. According to the Pew Research Center, 69% of adults and 81% of teens in the United States use social media. Um, and this puts a large amount of the population at an increased risk for anxiety and depression. So what makes users come back for more um, when it can literally make them feel awful and sick? And the reason is the same reason people gamble and the same reason people stay in abusive relationships. It is the phenomenon known for a very, very long time. 
which is the phenomenon of intermittent reinforcement. When someone who's in a, in a unhealthy relationship is shown a very, very clear pattern of abuse, it's much easier for them to leave. But when they don't know when they'll get the good one, when they don't know that that slot machine will deliver a good one, when they don't know that this is the day my teacher tells me that was a really beautiful story you wrote in telling, instead of telling the other one, then it keeps, you, it keeps you hooked. So when the outcome is unpredictable, the behavior is more likely to repeat. It's a slot, like a slot machine. If game players knew they were never going to get money by playing the game, or if they were shown the pattern whereby they will only win one out of exactly a certain number of times predictably, they wouldn't play. But the reward keeps the machines in use. One does not know how many likes a picture will get who will like the picture, and when the picture will receive likes. This is Instagram, which is based on pictures. The the unknown outcome and the possibility of a desired outcome can keep users engaged with the sites. And to boost self-esteem and feel a sense of belonging in their social circles, people post content. I do, with the hope of receiving positive feedback. Couple that content with a potential future reward, you get a recipe for constantly checking to see what the response was to your last post. People internalize the voice. I'm thinking of the Satan voice. Did I get as many likes as someone else? Am I naked? What are people thinking of me? Why did the person like, didn't like my post, but this other person did? I'm only getting likes from the people I didn't want the likes from. We have a fear of missing out and it hooks us for that fear of missing out. Everyone else, after all, is using social media. I feel like missing out on the experience itself contributes to anxiety and depression. As the researcher, Dr. Sperling, offers the example of a seventh grader whose best friend chooses a new best friend and posts pictures of the pair at the movies or on a weekend trip. 20 years ago, she writes, the girl may have been excluded from her best friend's activities, but she may not have known about it unless she was told explicitly. Now she finds out on her phone. The display is for the entire social group to ogle. In addition to providing young people with a window through which they can view missed experiences, social media puts a distorted lens on appearances and reality. Instagram, Snapchat, they increase the likelihood of seeing unrealistic filtered photos at a time when teen bodies are changing. In the, ta- in the past, teens read magazines that contained altered photos of models, yes. But these images are one thumb scroll away at any given time. And apps that provide the user with airbrushing, teeth whitening, I have a daughter about to get braces, so the idea that she's mostly going to see, I've noticed this, people just have perfect teeth online. And more filters are easy to find and easier to use. And it's not only celebrities who look perfect, but it's, it's everyone. Middle school is already a challenging situation for students with all of their developmental changes. And as they go through puberty, they're tasked with establishing their identity at a time when the frontal lobes in their brains are not fully developed and there's a lack of impulse control. And all of this happens while their relationships with peers become more important. And this is a very vulnerable population to have access to something where there's no stopgap before they post or press the send button. And I think the research says that that is something that one should be mindful of. Teresa Olihan published in USA Today how she is grateful that her parents did not let her be on social media. And she grew up reading books and she finds it a blessing now that she is allowed to be on social media and she sees the effects that it's had on her friends. She writes, Instagram algorithms facilitate the never-ending stream of photos and videos that can send teens spiraling toward eating disorders and unhealthy sense of their own bodies and depression. They worry what people think and they see unrealistic images. She points out that even Steve Jobs didn't let his own children use uh, the iPad. Bill Gates wouldn't let his children have phones until they were 14. Even Instagram co-founder Kevin Systrom 
expressed fears about his daughter growing up with the prevalence of harassment and bullying on the platform he co-created. And again, just yesterday in the New York Times, Laura McCowan published an essay about how she realized that she helped solve her alcoholism addiction by becoming an influencer on Instagram because she helped people get over addiction and she created a whole business out of it. And she felt she was following a lot of people until she realized that her posting was really a substitute for her other addiction with a new addiction. When I, she writes, when I did post, when I, when I posted well, or I got a bunch of followers, it felt great for a minute, but just as quickly, I felt pressure to do it again. And if something was negatively received or I lost people, I was consumed by anxiety and I felt compelled to fix it. And this consumed my time. Over time, I made hundreds of tiny adjustments to how and what I shared, editing myself to get the best outcome. But there was no best outcome. No matter what I did, there would never be enough followers, enough approval, enough success. The more I posted, the less I felt like my true self. Ayeka. In that way, it was very similar to alcohol, and the drinking also became fundamentally dishonest. The person I was when I was drinking was presenting a false front to the world, too. Once we're curating a false image of ourselves, online or otherwise, we become alienated from our true selves and we come, become untethered to our existence. So just coming back to the door portion and just, I know that it's like, okay, it's bad. What do we do? I think that we have to realize theologically that we have a gift of self-consciousness. We have to realize theologically and teach it in the Hebrew school and other places that there's a Satan voice that comes with that. And it's a voice that cares disproportionately what peers and others think about you and whether you are liked. And that this can often lead one to put out a persona that is not true to who you are, that makes yourself look more mature, that makes yourself look more resilient, that makes yourself look more that you've solved your own problems than you truly have. And so when God comes calling and saying, Ayeka, where are you really? Are you going to sort of show a persona because you don't know who you really are, or you're scared to show yourself naked? I wonder if the synagogue, and I hope it can be, and I intend it to be a place where we can show our young people and our teenagers. And clearly the research says it affects women more than boys. I want to take the boys seriously as well, but I think it's interesting the tilt within, within Genesis as well whether we can show them what really counts in God's eyes for the voice of what your true self is. I think that's what Torah really is about. Who is your true self? I'll end with this. Every time a teenager graduates from 12th grade in, from Beth Israel, they get a thumbnail drive of about eight hours of music, of my favorite music that I'm sharing with them. And it comes with a letter. It says, as you go through life, there are going to be fun times where you're judging yourself by what your professors think about you, what your peers think about you, where you got in and where you did not get in. And I want you to know that the only, the only yardstick by which God judges you and Torah judges you is whether you're trying to be a good person. And it's the only yardstick that matters. Shabbat Shalom.